Will you pray with me, please? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day that you've blessed us with. Uh, with the opportunity that we've had to hear uh, through music and through song the great gift we have of salvation and a relationship with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing uh, in, with For the Nations and Cameron, God, I thank you for his relationship with our church and the work that you're doing uh, to bring those who are not just far away geographically, but those who are far away spiritually closer and closer to you. And so, God, we love you. Pray that you bless this time in your word that would open our eyes and help us to see how we might find happiness as peacemakers. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Right. Good morning. It's already been a good day, amen? I think it's been a good day. I don't know what that was. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. In September 1938, Neville Chamberlain, who was then the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, returned home to London and declared that he had secured peace for our time. Now, he said this on the heels of what was called the Munich Agreement. The Munich Agreement was a deal made between Germany, France, and the United Kingdom about partitioning part of Czechoslovakia, the German-speaking portion, and giving it to Germany. Czechoslovakia was not included in the discussion, you should know. And Neville Chamberlain believed that he had looked into the eyes of Hitler and understood him. And he believed that he had secured peace for our time. Now, the tragedy of this statement is that less than a year later, on September 1st of 1939, the German army would be rolling into Poland, plunging Europe and subsequently the rest of the world into the greatest conflict our world has ever known. Neville Chamberlain got confused. He believed that avoiding a conflict, securing peace by avoiding a conflict and not fighting, standing up for somebody, not entering into a conflict, was the equivalent of making peace, and he was wrong. And many of us make that same mistake every single day. We think that avoiding conflict, not engaging in conflict, not not moving into difficult situations, we think that's making peace. As long as my little corner of the world is fine, as long as there's no gunshots around me, as long as no one's yelling angry words at me, everything's okay. Even though our homes might be incredibly tense, everybody might be walking on eggshells, we still say, well, at least it's quiet. And we confuse the absence of conflict with peace. So what I want us to talk about today is how we cannot be like Neville Chamberlain and how we can engage, how not avoiding conflict, how engaging in conflict and actually working to make peace on a societal level and then on a personal level can actually make us happy. We're walking through this study of the Beatitudes, the happiness statements of Jesus, and we're skipping a couple of them and coming to this one that I think is really important for our society today, where Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 9, blessed, happy are those who make peace. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We're going to look at what the challenge of peace is and what the gospel says and does about peace and then what we can do as well. So let's start talking about peace. Peace doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen naturally. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus is making another one of his makarios, the happiness statements. And when we first hear this, we think, yeah, that's right. Happy are those who make peace. And we agree with it tacitly because we make a subtle translation in our head. Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers, 
But we translate that and say, happy are those who enjoy peace. And there's a big difference there. Because there's a difference between making peace and simply enjoying peace. I think it's one of the reasons why we honor our military so much. They secure peace for us, and we enjoy that peace. We don't have to fight for that peace. We have people that do that on our behalf. Peacemaking is incredibly hard work. If you want to read an interesting book about the difficulty of peacemaking, it's a book called Paris 1919. Paris 1919. It's about the peace conference following World War I and the work and the toil that went into trying to secure a lasting peace after the war that ends all wars, right? We know, again, that that was not the case. World War II was quickly on the heels of that peace. In fact, the difference between making peace and enjoying peace, the difference in the difficulty, the stress, the work that goes into that, the difference is the same as the difference between building a house and just renting a room in it. The disparity is great. And this disparity comes from the fact that peace doesn't really happen naturally. We are a people given to conflict. We like to to fight. We like conflict. We move into it often. We, whenever there's, there's a disagreement, whenever your needs rub up against my needs or my wants rub up against your wants, we tend to fight over it. And one of the ways that we navigate this is we have laws in our society to govern the internal peace. If you think about it, laws are actually just internal peace treaties that we've all agreed to. Imagine what driving would be like if there were no internal peace treaties governing, law, governing how we drive. It's already a nightmare. Imagine with people just going however they want to go, which some people drive like that anyway, I guess. Imagine what our society would be like if we had no peace treaties, internal peace treaties, laws governing property rights. If you were bigger and stronger than me, you could just walk into my house and take something. In fact, last night I had somebody walk into my car and take Chick-fil-A coupons out of it while I was sleeping. So that happened despite laws, right? Laws are essentially internal peace treaties, and it's incredibly difficult to make them. In fact, if you don't believe me in how difficult it is to navigate peace within a society and outside of a society, go look at pictures of former presidents. Look at pictures of them when they start their term and when they end their term. They age like 20 years, no matter how long their term is. In fact, I think George W. Bush looks younger today than when he left office because of the amount of stress and work that goes in. I'd say that for President Obama as well. He seems to smile a lot more now that he's not president. It's interesting how hard peace is to make. And you probably experience it in your own home. Somebody in your family might be the peacemaker. And Jesus says that even though it's stressful, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, happy are those who engage in peace. Happy are those who engage in peace, in the peacemaking process. And even though peacemaking isn't natural, we still make attempts at making peace, right? And we try to picture what a perfectly peaceful world will look like, even though we've never lived in one. We've never lived in a perfectly peaceful world. There's conflict going on all the time. Peace doesn't come naturally. You have to envision something. It's like painting a picture from memory that you've never seen before. And somebody's describing it in words. And when we have to do this, when we have to craft peace 
in a way that we've never experienced before because we've never lived in perfect peace, we wind up skewing peace treaties, we wind up skewing, skewing attempts at peace towards our advantage. We, we, we can't help it. We can't help it. There's no perfect pieces. And depending on the kind of peace, depending on the kind of conflict we're trying to resolve, we meet with different levels of success. On one end of the spectrum, you might get something like segregation. Segregation was an attempt at making peace. You had a society, the South, that didn't know how to handle a post-slavery world. You have white people and you have black people, and we don't know how to get them to get along, so we're just going to come up with segregation. We'll just keep the parties separated, but it'll be equal. The problem was it wasn't equal. Because the white people were white Southerners, my people, the people that I grew up with, were making the deal, it was skewed to the advantage of white people, to the detriment of our black brothers and sisters. And that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Bill of Rights, which is largely regarded as the model for modern democracy. Most countries that are making democracies today and, and over the past hundred years or so modeled their constitution on our constitution, specifically the Bill of Rights. But even that document's not perfect, even though it's widely regarded as a great document. Because when it was written, who was it written by? White men. And so when we wrote the Bill of Rights, we didn't take into account Native Americans, African slaves, and even women. Now we've expanded that to include them, but when it was originally written, it wasn't. On top of that, even though it's a great document and should be celebrated, we still argue about it. The Second Amendment, we're fighting about that all the time. We even argue about our peace treaties because they're skewed in a certain direction to favor certain people, and it's because we're imperfect and broken people. And then you come to your personal level. I'm talking about society, but think about your personal life. Interactions between myself and my family, my friends, my coworkers, my fellow churchgoers. We find a lot of efforts, not just to win wars and to win conflicts, but to win peace. We want to win the peace rather than it being equitable. The ways that we do this, we cast blame on other people. It's your fault we're in the middle of this mess. It's your fault if you could just control your temper. It's your fault if you just didn't have to be so nitpicky about everything. This is your fault. We throw blame around. We manipulate. We cajole. We harangue people into agreeing to things, and often we beat people down with the force of our arguments. And we say, oh, we've secured peace, peace for our time. And everybody in your family, everybody in your sphere of influence is thinking, I just don't want to set off the bomb that this guy or this gal is. That's not peace. That's an absence of conflict. That's avoiding conflict. And that's not the peace that Jesus says is blessed. That's not the peace that's going to make us happy. And one of the chief ways that we do this is we're like Neville Chamberlain. We just avoid conflict. We just avoid it. We're like Switzerland. We just want to go skiing and eat chocolate. That's all we want to do. I don't want to fight. I just want to eat this milk chocolate bar. We avoid conflict. We think that everything's fine, and if the world around us is burning to the ground or there's corners of our life that aren't doing well, we go to our happy place, we hide away, and we think that everything's fine. So we don't bring up wounds and pain because we're afraid of starting that fight again. We don't try to improve our marriages and our friendships and our relationships because we don't want to start something. 
Because what we've done is we've traded peace for a ceasefire. We've traded peace for neutrality. We've traded peace for a demilitarized zone. That's not peace. It's not peace. It's not peacemaking. So if we're going to make peace, a lasting peace where everybody wins, we need a model for what that is. And I think the model that we have as Christians is the best one. And that's the gospel. The gospel is the best model for peace. In fact, the gospel peace, gospel peace doesn't avoid conflict. Gospel peace does not avoid conflict. The entire gospel, all that it's about, is really about the mission of the Son of God coming to earth and living amongst men to rescue and redeem us, to establish peace between warring factions. There is a great deal of conflict going on, and the gospel is designed to bring peace to those warring factions. Well, what warring factions are there? Who are the players? What conflicts are going on? Well, there's four that the Bible tells us about. The first one is there's conflict with God. There's conflict between us and God. Look at Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10. It says, For if while we were enemies, that's enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Scripture is clear that we are at war with God. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, and before you were a believer in Jesus Christ, you were at war with God. The moment Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the apple, it is a declaration of war. It is a cosmic bombing of Pearl Harbor. It's a cosmic invasion of Poland, the eating of the fruit. Their goal, the, the, the war aim of Adam and Eve is to supplant God with themselves. They want the throne for Adam. They want the throne for Eve. And you and I are born into this war. You don't get a, a, a stake. You don't get a, a say in it. You're just born into it. We're born into this war. We're born with a gun in hand and a resistance to the authority of God. But God, in his greatness, and even though he has the right, rather than punishing and crushing his enemies, putting the rebellion down, does something even greater. In Isaiah 53, 5, it tells us, talking about the Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Rather than crushing the rebellion, God crushes his son. And if we believe in him, if we put our faith in him and say that his work counts for us, then you know what that's akin to? It's signing the peace treaty. And we didn't get beaten down by God, God didn't force us into it. God didn't win the war. He crushed his son, and he gave us peace terms. He says, if you will just believe in my son, if you will make him Lord of your life, you can come back. We can have peace. And you might think to yourself, well, Travis, that's great, but I've broken the peace treaty numerous times. You don't understand. I, I, there have been a time in my life where maybe I, I committed to Christ, but I sin. I break that agreement all the time. Well, guess what? The peace treaty with God is not based on whether or not you keep it because it's based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's based on whether or not he keeps the agreement, and he is faithful and has never broken an agreement. He's never broken a covenant. He's never broken a promise. And so I can come back again and again to the Lord and say, Father, forgive me. I broke the peace treaty again, and I'm sorry. And there's grace and forgiveness for it, because our God is a peacemaker, and his son has made peace through his blood. He's made peace through his blood. And so it resolves the conflict, the conflict with us and God. 
but it also resolves the conflict within ourselves. The conflict within ourselves. Look at Philippians 4, verse 6. Philippians 4, verse 6. The Bible says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we declare war on God, something in us breaks. We become fractured. We become people that aren't whole anymore. We're like a war-torn state within us. And one of the, the ways that it shows up is that we struggle with things like worry and fear and anxiety. Now, obviously, some of those are, are, are mental illnesses, and those should be treated by doctors. But there's an element for us as believers where we need to think about how much of what I wrestle with is just brokenness inside of myself and a lack of faith, right? Often when we, when we break uh, our, our relationship with God through disobedience, we, we, we get angry with him and we yell at him. We're a lot like the, uh, the Black Knight from Monty Python, right? Has anybody seen Monty Python? You can admit it, it's okay. There's a part of the, of the story, it's a, it's a comedy, it's a satire, and there's a black knight who's guarding a path, and, and King Arthur fights him, and he cuts one of his arms off, and he thinks he wins the victory, and the black knight says, I'm not done yet, and he keeps fighting him till the point where eventually the black knight has no arms or legs, and he's saying, come back here, I'll bite your legs off. And that's how many of us interact with God. So because of the brokenness inside of us, we think we can just, just keep fighting God, and God's like, you don't have, you really can't not how that works. We have brokenness inside of us that the gospel enters in and heals. And the more and more we apply the gospel to our life, the more and more we understand that Jesus Christ died for my sins and we apply it to different parts of our life, the more and more healing takes place and we get made whole. That's what sanctification is. The fractured nature of my mind and heart, the anxiety, the constant concern of getting my own way and making that my own needs are secure winning every piece that comes around, that can be calmed by the message of the gospel. So we have conflict with ourselves, within ourselves, but we also have conflict with other people. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So our war that we're in with God hasn't just created enemies of God and ourselves, all of a sudden, all of you are threats and enemies of me as well. Because when I want to replace God on the throne, I don't want to replace God with humanity. A humanist might say that, but the truth of the matter is, I don't want humanity on the throne of God. I want me on the throne of God. So there's one throne, and there's about seven billion of us. So that means you're an enemy, and you're an enemy, and you're an enemy, and you're an enemy. It's why when I don't get my way, I get so angry because you're trying to take that throne from me. I'm the center of the universe, not you. But Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection tears down the dividing wall of hostility. This passage is talking about Jews and Gentiles, people that were uh, estranged and were fighting constantly. But the Bible tells us that the wall of hostility is no longer there because the gospel brings about peace. It enters into the conflict. It doesn't avoid the awkward conflict between you and me. No, the gospel goes into that conflict and brings healing to it. 
on a personal level, on a societal level, on a global level. For the Nations does what For the Nations does because of the gospel. The gospel is at work in Cameron's life and his wife's life as well. The gospel doesn't avoid that conflict. And the reason why, if the gospel is center to my life, if I'm no longer at war with God and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me, I know that I have the victory already. I've already won the peace. And because I've already won the peace, I don't have to try and milk things out of you when you and I are trying to negotiate conflict resolution. I can trust that God is going to protect my interests because he has done so, so far. I can put my faith in him. So there becomes no need for things like racism, nationalism, personal acclaim, and things like wealth and success at the expense of other people because I'm at peace, I'm at rest. And my God is the one that secures that peace. I don't have to. So there's conflict with God, there's conflict with ourselves, there's conflict with others, but there's one more that we don't talk about a lot. It's conflict with creation. Conflict with creation. Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 says, verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When Adam and Eve eat from the fruit, God comes through and he levels judgment. He levels curses on the various parties involved. So the snake gets cursed, the woman is cursed, and then when he comes to the man, he actually doesn't curse the man. Instead, he curses the ground because of the man. And there's a whole great theological reason why this happens. We don't have time for it today. But the ground becomes cursed. And so when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and raises again, he dies so that we can have peace with each other, we can have peace with God, but also so that the earth that we live in isn't this bombed out Berlin from 1945, but becomes a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation that we can enjoy. Following World War II, the economies of Europe were wrecked. Whether you were a winner, whether you were a loser, whether you were somewhere in between, the economy of Europe tanked. And George C. Marshall, who was Secretary of State at the time, realized we've got to prop up Europe economy or they're going to suck everybody else in with them. And so he started supplying aid to Great Britain and to France to help them rebuild their economies. But he realized that by not helping Germany rebuild their economy as well, not helping the enemy, they were going to all be sucked in anyway into a catastrophic economic situation. And so they began to rebuild Germany. They began to rebuild the enemy. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't just rebuild us. He doesn't just rebuild our relationships with each other. He rebuilds the place where we live. Salvation is not a lifeboat rescue from a sinking ship. Salvation is God coming and making a new heaven and a new earth and him dwelling with us forever and making a perfect place for us to stay. Even though we're the ones that started the war, he's the one who brings peace. And that word for peace in the Hebrew is a word that you're probably, many of you are familiar with, it's shalom. And shalom means wholeness, completeness. Gospel peace is a peace 
that is thorough, that enters into every conflict and every portion of the conflict. It doesn't avoid issues because they're sensitive. It doesn't avoid things because, well, I don't know how to talk about that. And so we learn from the gospel how we too can be peacemakers. We learn that the gospel is something that enters into every bit of conflict. It doesn't avoid it. And so we shouldn't avoid it either. But we also learn something else from the gospel. We learn that the gospel, in order to secure peace, requires sacrifice. Peace requires sacrifice. We sacrifice ourselves for gospel peace. We sacrifice ourselves for gospel peace. Look at Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We have to sacrifice ourselves for gospel peace. If there's nothing else that the gospel teaches us is that in order to secure peace, it costs something. For God, it cost him his son. In order for him to have peace with us and us to have peace with each other, it cost his son. And so it should come as no surprise that for us to secure peace on a societal level and on a personal level, one-to-one, one-to-two, whatever it might be, it will take sacrifice. And I think this passage teaches us a couple of things to sacrifice in order to secure peace. One, we need to sacrifice our time. We need to sacrifice our time. Look at verse 19 again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God himself dwelt on earth for 33 years in a human body. And where did he take up residence? Did he take up residence in Rome, in the center of power? No, it was a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth. And I don't know why God chose to hang out in Nazareth for 30 years before he started his ministry. And I don't know why God took so long between Abraham, who's the first person promised peace in the Bible. In Genesis 15, 15, God tells him, you'll have peace. And the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ, I don't know why it took hundreds of years. But I do know the reason why we don't have ultimate perfect peace now. Second Peter. Second Peter tells us uh, that God is waiting so that everyone can come to know Christ. The gospel is for everybody. God is biding his time. He's waiting. And so that tells us as well that in order for us to secure peace with other people, we have to take our time. We have to take time. We have to sacrifice our time. We can't just gloss over things. We can't just rush past hurt feelings in order for us to be okay. I think it's one of the reasons why we as white people struggle in the racial reconciliation conversation. Our black brothers and sisters want to and need to express the hurt and the pain that their culture has gone through over the years. And I think from a place of goodness, we come in and we're like, we want to fix that. We want to help that. And their, their, their response has been, great, but we're not done telling you about why we're hurt. And so as believers, as white believers, we need to be patient and allow that pain to be expressed. We can't just rush past it. We have to sacrifice that time. Maybe another way it looks like in your personal life is to plan when you're going to talk. Don't just rush into a conversation. We need to sacrifice our time. We need to sacrifice our pride. 
Verse 21 tells us, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The Bible, the gospel teaches us that we're the ones at fault for the conflict with God. It says here, we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And for us to come to Christ, we have to acknowledge that we've done things wrong, that we're broken. In order for us to have peace in our relationships, we also have to acknowledge that we've done things wrong. Nobody is perfect. Every conflict you've been in, you've probably contributed in some way, shape, or form. You can say, I'm sorry. You can take the first step. Maybe you take all the blame sometimes. Men, I can't tell you how great of respect I earned from my wife the first time I said, you know what, this is just all my fault. I'll take all the blame for this, even though I think in that particular instance it wasn't necessarily all my fault. (laughs) But it was helpful. And it was good and it brought healing. Sometimes you have to be the first one to lay down your weapons. Do it. Take a step of faith. So we sacrifice our pride. We also sacrifice our self-interests. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The whole purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is to take a people and present them to God so that we might glorify God forever, holy and blameless before him. That is the goal of conflict resolution. For the believer, when you have resolved conflict, you will know that it is a gospel peace because everybody involved is giving glory to God. That is our goal. That's our purpose. When we bring in gospel peace, we want everybody glorifying God. And if no, somebody's not glorifying God out of that peace resolution, we need to start over. We need to do it again and work on it. Now, if you'll notice, I left out a key component talking about blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? Sons of God. I think peacemakers are called sons of God because the Son of God is a peacemaker. Through his gospel, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have peace. Look, I know we all want to avoid peace or avoid conflict. It's awkward and sticky and icky and can sometimes feel like it's causing more harm than good. But as believers, we need to be brave and show that we really do believe a gospel of peace and in the Prince of Peace and not run from conflict, but rush into it and make peace with those around us. Help peace be made. Let the gospel infiltrate every part of your life. Find peace in yourself that way, and then share that peace with others. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for how good you are to us, Lord, and how you have given us peace. You've secured the peace through your death, through your burial, and your resurrection. And so we have it today, if we will but believe. I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not believe, today will be the day that they sign the peace treaty. That the war comes to an end in their own life. And they can take up and enjoy the peace that was secured for them. And they begin to make peace in every area of their life. I pray that if there's conflict in a home, in a school, with a sports team, whatever it might be, that we would be peacemakers and not people who contribute to the conflict. Help us to not run from conflict but to run in with the gospel. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. We're now gonna enter into a time of response and reflection, and this is gonna be a time of of instrumental. I want you to pray and consider what God is doing in your life, and then we'll come together and we'll sing uh, really a prayer of peace. So take time and reflect on the peace that God has won for you.